Uh, guys, I'm very excited to get started uh, this month and, and today on our topic for this month. I'm both excited and at the same time terrified, especially today, uh, with the topic we are going uh, for because I read in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, the prophet says this, the Lord's words, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Today, I've picked a very light topic for us to to go through this morning, God's holiness, all right? So sit back and relax. It's going to be very light, not. I thought to myself as I was preparing this week, how in the world do I boil down the holiness of God into one sermon? Uh, But alas, I'm going to try to do that. And I asked the Sunday school class this morning, I'm going to ask you as well too, but we just have a a little bit of time. Maybe you can think about it and then consider it as we're going through the sermon, but don't go too deep down this rabbit hole. What comes to your mind when you think of the word holy? I mean, we've we've sung a lot of songs this morning that have this concept of holiness, holy, holy, holy. You can't get more standard than that song right there to talk about God's holiness. But what do you think of when you think of the word holy? Perhaps you think of a, of a dark room with candles in it, or you think of some, some monks, you know, droning their way up to the front of a, of a sanctuary. Maybe you think of seriousness and solemnness. Perhaps maybe for you, a holy place or a holy moment is a walk in the forest or a walk on the beach. Maybe when you think of holiness, you think of laws and strict rules and commands and regulations. We use phrases in our day and age such as holy moments or sacred spaces or saintly people. All of those ideas carry the idea of holiness. And as I think of holiness, it sort of reminds me of the minister who bought a lawnmower at a yard sale. He was out one day and he, he needed a lawnmower for his his own lawn in his own house, and he saw a perfectly great one at this yard sale, and so he went to it, and fair price on it, and he bought it, and he got it home, and he got it prepared and ready to use it, and he just, like, you, we've all been there, right, on the old push mower, and you pull on that rope, and you pull on that rope, and you pull, and nothing happens. He's like frustrated. He's like, I paid good money for this thing, and so he summarily wheels it right back down to the house, and he says, hey, Buster, I bought this thing for good money and expected it to work and it's doing nothing. He said, <laughs> he goes, I did forget to tell you that you can only get it running, pulling on the rope and, and cursing a whole lot. That's what really will get it started. To which the minister, he's like, you do realize who I am and what I do, right? I'm a minister. He goes, I don't even, I don't even know because I am so holy if I remember how to curse. And he goes, that's all right. Keep pulling that rope and it'll all come back to you. Oh gosh, the idea of holiness. Because the problem is that most people are not very clear on the concept of, of holiness. I mean, we use that concept a lot. We use that word, we use that phrase and idea a whole lot, but I just don't think we grasp a hold of what it really means. It's a, it's a pretty biblic, big biblical theme, and that's probably an understatement. The Bible uses the word holy 637 times. 
But here's the catch. If we don't know what God's holiness means, if we don't truly know what the word holy means, we'll never know where to begin when he tells us, as the Apostle Peter writes in his first letter, be holy as I am holy. I don't know about you, I read that and I read that phrase and doesn't it just make you kind of shudder? Like what? I don't, how? I, to be holy as God is holy. Now the dictionary defines and carries the meaning for holy to mean to divide or to mark off or to set apart from all else. That's what truly the word holy means. The Hebrew word, and I already told the Sunday school class, because so they're a little head and they could probably tell me, what was that word again? Wade, do you remember? What the Hebrew word for holy. No, he doesn't, so I'm just going to tell everybody again. See, this is why you have to tell somebody something seven times and then it finally clicks in. The Hebrew word for holy is the Hebrew word, and it's a fun word to say. Everybody say it. It's kadosh. Can you say that with me? Kadosh. Now you've got a little Hebrew you can walk around with, and you just say it, and nobody knows what you're talking about, but you sound really, really smart. The Hebrew word kadosh means to cut. To literally cut off or to be cut off for something. Now in this case, we're talking about holiness. It means to be cut something off, to use it, and to prepare it for a special and holy purpose. When applied to God and applied to his character and his attributes, holiness is that which divides God from everyone and everything else. God is holy other. I mean, like he is his own category. It is the awesome mystery of what makes God, God. I mean, we see this illustrated early in Israel's history, don't we? Just after the parting of the Red Sea, Israel had certainly seen plenty of things, plagues, an exodus, a pillar of fire and cloud, and now waters wall up is what it says literally in Scripture. They wall up. The song of deliverance. And towards the end of that song, he says these words in verse 11. Who is like you among the gods. O Lord, glorious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders. But I want to zoom in on just one of the words that Moses uses there, this concept and this word of glorious or majestic. The word means, in its literal sense, expanded. That, that whatever we think about God, if I just gave you about two minutes and said, I want you, what was the thing that pops into your mind when I say, God, go. There you go. There you go. There you go. So here's the deal, guys, with God's holiness and his glory and his majesty and that idea of expanding our minds, whatever we think we know about God, and all of these words that we say about God that are absolutely true, whatever we think we know about God is only widened and expanded and magnified through the viewpoint of holiness. I want you to think about it this way. I want you to think about a microscope. 
all right? All of us have probably used a microscope or familiar with a microscope and how it works. Think of that microscope that, that can zoom in and magnify an image to a greater degree the more that you twist that knob, the more that you bring that plate closer or farther away from the microscope. But that's where the analogy breaks down when it comes to God's holiness. Because God's holiness is not just six times or ten times or even a hundred times the holiness of anyone else that you know. Guys, God's holiness, and this is truly what it means for God to be holy, is in a category all by itself in which he is the only member. He is utterly different than anyone or anything else that we know. A.W. Tozer once said it this way. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. We are blind to it. We may fear, we may respect, or we may have awe for God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness we cannot even imagine. Do you know now why I say I am both very excited to preach this today and very terrified? His holiness we cannot even imagine, and yet I am going to stand up here for the next few minutes and try to talk to you about God's holiness. It makes me feel about that's small. Chip Ingram similarly says, even with God's help, and I just want to stop there for a moment and, and have you realize this, that the greatest grace I believe that God can give to us, yes, is his son, but I think even before that and thinking about it, the greatest grace that we have been given by God is to know him. Do you understand that? the creator of the entire universe, who is so other than us, so unattainable and unapproachable, has made a way for us to come to him and to know him. Guys, just take that one thing right there and walk away with that and let that just blow your mind. Even with God's help, Chip Ingram says, we will be overwhelmed by his holiness long before we understand much about it. And while that is all well and good and true, the question we have to ask ourselves is what in the world does all of this have to do with your life and mine? I mean, what does it really matter who God the Father is? What does it really matter that God is holy? And again, we come back to something that I said at the very beginning. I don't want to gloss over it. I want to be very precise about this. If we cannot grasp the holiness of God, how are we supposed to pursue holiness ourselves? Because again, what did the Apostle Peter say? You are to be holy as the Lord God is holy. How? We have to understand first and foremost the holiness of God. And herein lies the tension with any person, especially Christians. How in the world can we affirm that God is on one hand unfathomable and at the same time understand that God's holiness is at the center of who he is and what we must understand that that means? 
Again, listen to the words of A.W. Tozer. And this is a very, very important quote. This is a very big quote. If there is one attribute, if there is one trait, if there is one characteristic of God that stands above all the other ones, that all the others rest upon, it has to be God's holiness. Do you understand? That's a big statement. For us to ever move on beyond what we're talking about this morning, for us to move on and talk about all the other characteristics that we're going to talk about for this month, we have to start right here at the core and the foundation, holiness. And in some ways, and some people have actually called this, God's holiness has been called his most unpopular attribute. Because honestly, most of us would rather not dwell on God's holiness. There's other characteristics that are far more attractive to us. His, his love and his, his grace and his mercy, his compassion, his presence, his power. His holiness, honestly, is a, not just a little, but a lot daunting to us. Do, do you feel that when you talk about God's holiness? And as I'm talking about it right now, you're just like, can't even I can't even take this in I'm not here this morning in the time that I have to just answer your questions and make you completely 100% understand God's holiness it ain't gonna happen I would imagine that at best I'm gonna get you like 10% of the way there all right and even on your best day and your hardest trying you're not getting close to understanding this Holiness sounds very scary. It sounds unapproachable. And in many ways, it is. But it is also the attribute that binds all of his other attributes together. This is the characteristic that most uniquely and most precisely describes God. Jonathan Edwards says it this way, a true love of God must begin with a delight in his holiness. And not with a delight in any other attribute, for no other attribute is truly lovely without holiness. There's a, there's a dual difficulty in understanding the holiness of God. One, just try to understand an infinite God. Again, Isaiah 55. My thoughts are way beyond your thoughts. I'm higher than anything that you can think about. We just start there. How in the world do I understand an infinite God? But there's a bigger problem that we have beyond that, too, is that we have to come to terms with our finiteness and our wickedness. As someone has said, that everything about us at our core and at the base in humanity is dirty. That even our whitest white is dingy gray in the presence of a holy God. Again, I reflect back to and I refer to A.W. Tozer, which, by the way, for the next four weeks, you're going to hear that name over and over and over again. He says it and he puts it this way. Worship. What we do, not just here on Sunday, but what we do every single day of our lives rises or it falls with our concept of God. That is why I do not believe in these half-converted, what he terms, cowboys. I love it who call God the man upstairs. You ever heard somebody say that? And I was just like, the man upstairs. If there is one terrible disease in the church, 
It is that we do not see God as great as he really is. And he puts it this way, that we are too familiar with God. Communion with God is one thing, but familiarity with God is quite another thing, as he puts it. C.S. Lewis understood the very same thing, and he had a similar mindset to Tozer. He said, God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again, he says. I love the way he puts that. Like, you remember back in the Old Testament, right, that Moses comes to God and he says, God, what did he say? Show me your glory. Show me your face. You know what, you know what Moses got? He got God's backside. That's literally what that means when he says he puts him in the, in the cleft of the rock and he covers him with his hand to protect him. And he says, you will only see, the, 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 the literal word is the hindquarters of me. And you know what happened to Moses when he saw that? When he saw just a brief reflection in the backside of God? Glowed. That's the glory. That's the presence. That's the holiness of God. In the New Testament, the word for holiness literally means an awful thing. And not awful like, oh, that's awful, but awe. I am in awe. Awful thing. And this is where we have gone astray in our world and our lives today, I believe. We are too familiar with God and we have lost what one person calls it, a sense of God's majestic holiness, his awful, unapproachable quality. Guys, we, I, as I say that, I know some of you are like, wow, man, like, I can't even, I can't even get close to God. In one sense, no, you can't. You're never going to get close to God. And I think what happens sometimes, though, is we misinterpret what I'm talking about here. That God is is so other that he's absolutely unapproachable. We could never get to God. So don't even think about trying to get close to God. But guys, I already said this, but I'm going to say it again. The magnificent truth is that God does want us to approach him. But he wants us to do it in the right way and with the right attitude and most importantly with the understanding that we should do this. And if we do this, we will not come out of it untouched. I think the best way that you can in your life say, I, want, I wonder if I have had a really and truly holy experience in my life, that I've been on holy ground. And you just think back to all the times that you have come out of a situation or come out of an encounter with God and you have not come out of it unscathed. You've not been untouched. I think of the story in the Old Testament of Jacob as Jacob wrestles with God and they're fighting. Tell me your name. No, I won't tell you my name. Tell me your name. Why do you want to know my name? And what does God do at the very end of that wrestling match? Simply it says he touches Jacob's hip, pops it out of place, dislocates it. Now, guys, we may not wrestle with God in that sense, and we may not have our hips dislocated, but every time that we come into the presence of God face-to-face with him, we will not come out of it the same. That's a holy moment. That's holy ground. Guys, the overwhelming good news is that when we approach God, and we can approach God in Christ, the only thing that really, truly dies in that encounter with God is our sin 
and our selfishness. Like, think about this. We come into the presence of God, we should be toast. He says that all through. You cannot see my face. No one will see my face. You cannot come into my presence. Stay back. Boundary mark. No further. And then Jesus comes and changes everything. He says, now you can approach me. And the writer of Hebrews says, you can approach me with boldness. Now, wait a minute. That word there does not mean cockiness. Arrogance. It means we are bold because of what Christ has done for us on our behalf to bring us into the presence of an unapproachable God. Guys, to grasp the otherness of God requires surrendering ourselves, heart, mind, and soul to the one who has revealed himself, his transcendent, unapproachable self to us. That's exactly where I wanted to continue taking things this morning, looking at God's holiness through the lives of those who came to surrender themselves, heart, mind, and soul, to his glorious majesty. But again, I'm going to ask these two questions that I've already asked. How do you and I, finite creatures that we are, understand the infinite nature of a holy God, and how do we go about reflecting even a fraction of that, that holiness, in our lives. Guys, we, we're, we're not here this morning just to study God's holiness in an academic way. We don't, we don't, it's not merely academic. There are clear expectations of us as God's holiness comes more into focus in our life. The extent to which we understand God's holiness, limited as it may be, must lead to that character and that nature being reflected in us. I love the way R.C. Sproul put this. He said, we study God's holiness not because we are holy, but precisely because we are not holy and we know it. Oof. <laughs> that gets you, doesn't it? We don't look at God's holiness. We don't want to become like God and being holy because we are holy, but because we aren't and we absolutely know it. And so the first question we must tackle is, how in the world does God reveal his holiness? And there are innumerable ways that I could talk about that God reveals his holiness, but I want to just talk about one this morning and how this plays out in the Bible. Guys, first and foremost, and what I'm going to talk about here is that God displays his holiness to and through people. Now, the Bible is chock full of people who come into the presence of God and realize they're in the midst of holiness, and that has a profound impact on our life. Start at the beginning of the Bible, and one of the first people that we come to, I know we've got Abraham and all those guys, but one of the major moments of Scripture we come to is Moses. Leading God's people through the wilderness, and he has an encounter with God in a completely ordinary, out-of-the-way spot. And what was just dirt and dust and sand moments before becomes holy and sacred space. And what does God say to Moses as Moses approaches him? Take off your sandals. Take off your shoes for the place that you are standing is holy ground. Moses has this encounter and he's forever changed. The whole trajectory of his life is changed. Let's talk about a man, Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah 
I don't often understand what Isaiah writes into, the period of time that Isaiah writes into. Isaiah and the people of Israel are in a time of transition and turmoil. They're not, not really their most well-known king, but the one who did some really great things and he served for over 50 years has just died. And Isaiah turns to God for guidance and he gets way more than he bargains for. He doesn't just get guidance. He gets a vision of God. And if you want to turn in your Bibles and want to read here very quickly, just the first five verses of Isaiah chapter 6. It was in the year King Uzziah died and I saw the Lord. He catches a vision of God, I believe, a vision of God in heaven. And he was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending them were mighty seraphim, each having six wings, with two wings that covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they flew. And they were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Now there's a lot that I can talk about in those five verses, but that's not where I want to land this morning. And then I said, it's all over. I'm doomed for I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips. I live among a people with filthy lips, yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. You, you catch in this moment what happens in Isaiah. When we truly see God in all of his holiness, He's changed, isn't he? You come back and circle back to this idea, combining it with the story that we're going to talk about for this morning, of what happens when we truly grasp and come into the presence of God's glory. I want to talk just a moment here of this concept where he says in verse 3, holy, holy, holy. Now, in our English language, we're like, that's great. There's three holies there. It doesn't really mean much. But in Hebrew, it means everything. In Hebrew, repetition represents maximum quality. And in this case, we get a sense that nothing and no one comes close to the glory of God. This is one of two times in Scripture that something is repeated three times. Here in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation 4 that we're going to read at the end of the service. Holy Holy, holy are you, God. Again, R.C. Sproul says there is only one attribute that is ever raised to the third power of repetition in Scripture. There is only one characteristic of God that is communicated in the incomparable degree it is His holiness. The Bible doesn't say that God is love, 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 or justice, 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 but that He is holy, holy, holy. This is an aspect of God that consumes his very essence. And that's why Chip Ingram says this is why an accurate view of God is so absolutely critical. An upward accurate view of, view of God leads to an inward accurate view of yourself. I want to read that again. And this is why holiness is so important. When we truly see God for all that he is, we truly see ourselves for all that we are. It exposes us. It bears us to our core. That's why Isaiah says here, it's all over. I'm, I'm doomed. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among an unclean people. God, you will have nothing to do with me. 
You get an accurate view of yourself. You're fallen short. You're desperately needing grace, which in turn leads to an outward view of your life being about God's agenda instead of yours and your life being about the needs of others instead of you and your little kingdom. But Moses and Isaiah may seem a little too obvious for displaying and beginning to describe God's holiness. We're like, yeah, right, we know that. We know holy ground. We know holy, holy, holy in Isaiah 6. In that case, I think there's a really fascinating example of four guys who show up in the Babylonian Empire in the 600s B.C. when they are just teenagers. If you want to turn this morning to Daniel chapter 3. And what we usually take away from the beginning of Daniel here in the lives of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego is that with enough courage and with enough bravery, we too can stand against the big bad monsters of life and push back the evil influences around us. Guys, if that's the message we get out of Daniel, it's just, that's just a smidgen of the message of Daniel. It doesn't even come close to the main idea of what's happening in these stories. And unfortunately, I don't have the time to tell the story of these four friends in depth, but I believe that just a sweeping glance of what we're going to do today, and just very quickly, and I promise you we're going to do this quickly, I'm going to say this, and you'll be like, what? Is we are going to very quickly touch on Daniel 1 through 4 and see what happens and develops through those chapters and what it says about God's holiness. And I want you to think about this in terms of, of a fight. We're going to go four rounds today. And in round one, in case number one, we get a battle in Babylon. These teenage boys are brought in. They're in exile and they're brought in. And they are forced to abide by the customs and the regulations of the Babylonian empire. And it says right off the bat, and this is very important, we'd be tempted to look over at Daniel chapter one. I want you to look at Daniel chapter one, verse eight. It says this. You remember this, right? I want you to eat my food. I want you to drink my wine. And Daniel says, no. No, 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 but you're, but like, you're going to get me in trouble. Eat the food, drink the wine. No, I'm not going to do that. It says here in verse 8, Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to him by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Guys, Daniel was so committed to personal holiness and pursuing that holiness because he recognized that holiness in God and he sought to emulate that in his life. And so we go through all of Daniel 1 and we understand what happens there. The chief steward agrees, okay, I'll feed you only vegetables and water. I won't feed you the king's food and his wine. And they end up, it says, being greater and better looking and they in every way turn out to be wiser than any other person in the kingdom. And then we come to chapter 2, round 2. See, I told you we're going to go fast. That's round, that's round 1. Round 2, we see at the beginning here in my Bible, it has the title, Nebuchadnezzar's Dream. And to boil this all down, I'm not going to tell you everything about this dream because it really doesn't have anything to do with what I'm talking about today. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he's very disturbed, and he calls in all of his magicians and all of his astrologers and says, you guys, here's the dream. Tell me what it means. And you know what they do? I don't know. Then who would you know shows up on the scene? 
Daniel, who it says throughout the book of Daniel, that Daniel has the spirit of the gods in him. He is not a god, but he has the spirit of the gods in him. And Daniel interprets this dream, and we come to the end of chapter 2, and I want you to look at verses 46 and 47. Now, I want you to mind this. We're going to talk about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is about as pagan a king as you can get. And listen to what he says at the end of chapter 2, after Daniel has interpreted this dream. Then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshipped him. What? And he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, now listen, Truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. Words that come from a pagan, foreign, Gentile king. Unthinkable. And we look at this and we're like, well, I don't know, man, this, this Nebuchadnezzar guy, we kind of give him a bad rap. Maybe he's a good guy after all. But guys, there's a really, really big difference between acknowledging God in the heat of the moment and surrendering yourself to God for a lifetime. And I believe that is a dividing point here in the book of Daniel, but I believe that's a dividing point in all of our lives, in every single person's life. Yeah, you may acknowledge God, but have you surrendered your life fully to God? Is your praise a shallow surface praise, or is it a deep, abiding, heartfelt praise? Nebuchadnezzar, right here at the very beginning, experiences a moment, and he actually does throughout these first four chapters, many moments of conviction, but conviction, guys, is not conversion. Conviction, acknowledgement, is not knowing God's holiness for everything that it is. In Daniel 2, God had given Nebuchadnezzar a vision of greatness. That's what his dream is all about. And this vision of greatness had obviously gone to Nebuchadnezzar's head. And although he acknowledges the greatness of God, he assumes his own greatness is equal to, if not supreme to God's greatness. So we move into round three, what happens here? Most commentators and most scholars that are far smarter than I am would say that there's probably about a 15 to 20 year gap between chapters 2 and chapter 3. So if you read that usually and you're like, wait a minute, dude, you just said, you just said that God was the greatest of, of gods, and then here you're saying, I'm going to set up a statue and everybody needs to worship it, and really what you're doing is you're worshiping me and my greatness. Like, make, that makes no sense at all. It makes more sense if you say that there's 15 to 20 years, and Nebuchadnezzar, just like all of us here in this room, we have a forgetfulness problem, don't we? He completely forgets what he says at the end of chapter 2, and he says, I'm going to put up a gold statue. Imagine this, 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide, which honestly, if you really think about that, is an odd construction. It's almost like a totem pole, actually, is what it is. It would be equivalent to two semi-trailers stacked on top of each other. That's how high it would have been. And it would have been very narrow. Uh, not as high as a Washington Monument, but the same style. Sort of like an obelisk is what they would have called it. He sets this up and he says, everybody, worship. And what happens, guys, if he says, if you do not bow down and you do not worship this, what's going to happen to you? To the furnace, you will go. Which, by the way, does not sound like a pleasant way to go out of this world. 
I mean, think about that for a moment. You're faced with this moment, and likely most of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, will never face a moment where we're saying, you worship this God or else. Death, whatever that form may be. Just put yourself in the, in the shoes of these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. But really, I think what's interesting about and what is an undercurrent story in chapters 2 through 4 in the midst of bigger and more well-known stories, a furnace, is the spiritual development of Nebuchadnezzar. On one hand, who praises God as the greatest of gods, and on the other hand says you must worship this God, and if you don't, you're toast. And as the rest of chapter 3 goes, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this statue and says, worship, or else. If, if round one we could term to be a battle in Babylon, that's how everything shapes up with these four guys coming into the Babylonian Empire. As one preacher has dubbed it, chapter three is, you ready for this one? The skirmish by the furnace. It's on, guys. There is a fight brewing here between, not just Nebuchadnezzar and these three guys, but between God and Nebuchadnezzar. And all along the way, we know what happens in, in chapter 3. All the way along the way, not just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but Daniel himself to never bow their knee to a lesser God. They never compromise their relationship with God. They never lose their identity of who they were in the Lord. They remain true to him. They remain strong in their faith. And they are unwavering. And do you know why I think that is? It's not just because they are naturally brave and courageous people. I believe it's because they recognize the holiness of God. They were in awe of God. They feared God, and they recognized that there is no other God but God. I don't think that's just for four guys in Babylon, guys. I think that's for us, too. We, too, need to be able to discern what is God honoring and affirming of his holiness and what tears at it and brings us to our knees in the wrong sort of way. Because whenever a conflict or whenever a tension arises in life between who or what we are going to follow and worship and obey, we always have to defer to a holy God. Nothing else. No one else. That shows up here about midpoint through chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. These are, that's such an important moment right here. It's revealed that these three guys will not bow to the statue Nebuchadnezzar has placed out there. And so in verse 15, he says, okay, guys, here's the deal. Because I like you so much, I'm going to give you one more chance. One more chance to bow down and worship the statue, he says. And when you hear the sound of the musical instruments... But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then listen to this. <laughs> Gosh, what arrogance. And then what God will be able to rescue you from, what's that say right there? My power. Like, imagine yourself in that moment. I would be shaking. <laughs> Not these three guys. What do they say? Continuing on verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego replied, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. 
If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. And then one of the most important phrases in all of the Bible, verse 18, but even if, even if he doesn't do that, we want to let you know, Nebuchadnezzar, and make it clear to you that we will never serve your gods. We will never worship the gold statue that you have set up. Guys, one rock-solid truth about God that we need to hold on to in our lives is, guys, the presence of God, His being there is all we need to experience the holiness of God. He simply needs to show up in all of His glory and His power and His majesty is made known. Because three guys decide to take a stand in the middle of the Babylonian Empire, in the middle of pagan culture, God enters into this moment and His name is made great. We continue on, go to verse 24. The furnace incident has already happened. Nebuchadnezzar is furious. It says he heats this furnace up seven times hotter than he usually would. That's when you know you're having a bad day. You're not just getting a furnace. You're giving it seven times hotter than it usually is. Verse 24 says this, but suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Now, I wish I had more time to talk about this. Uh, most people believe this is not just what they would call a theophany, which is a, a vision of God. Most people say, and I believe this is to be true, it is a Christophany. Christ is there with them in that moment. A, a, before he comes to earth in bodily form, Jesus, I believe, shows up many times in the Old Testament. This is one of them here in the furnace. And he is with his people. He is present in this moment with his people. And then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out here. Come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. And then listen to it again. Here's the end of chapter 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned in heaps of rubble. That's a really nice image, by the way, right? I mean, it's not... By the way, probably don't use that as an evangelistic strategy. Like, worship God or I'm going to tear you limb from limb and burn your house down. Okay, that sounds really nice. Let me hear more about this God you have to talk about. And then he says here at the very end of verse 21, there is no other God who can rescue like this. This is where I want to stop and, and just capture one phrase that I have spent the last several minutes making a case for, something that we all need to absolutely grasp in our own 
lives. Guys, here it is. God alone, no one else, God alone is perfectly holy. Which brings us to round four. I told you earlier that one of the interesting subplots, although I don't think it's much of a subplot, once you discover what's really going on here is Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual development through these four chapters. It's, it's up and it's down to say the least. A man who has acknowledged God has also challenged God. What God will be able to rescue from my power, me, my, I, it is the key verse of chapter 3, and it's really the key mindset of these opening chapters. Guys, we are no Nebuchadnezzar in a base sense, but there is way more similarity between us than we would like to admit. I mean, do we not sometimes exalt ourselves beyond what we should? Do we not often act as if matters of destiny are in our hands and not God's hands? Is not the same pride that is lurking in the heart of this king also lurking in our own hearts? Guys, pride is the root of every other sin. It is the log in our eye that keeps us from seeing God for who he really is. Again, C.S. Lewis says, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free. And the vice that I am talking about is pride or self-conceit. And the opposite to it in Christianity is humility. And then listen to what he says. Anger, greed, drunkenness, name it. All of those are mere, as he calls them, flea bites. In comparison, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Jonathan Edwards again says it is the first and worst cause of error, the chief source of all mischief that the devil introduces to clog and to hinder a work of God. It is the mainspring, or at least the main support of all the other sins. Till this disease is cured, medicines are in vain applied to heal other diseases in our spiritual life. Guys, pride is harder to discern than any other corruption. And for that reason, the nature of it does very much consist in a person's having too high a thought of himself. But no wonder that he has too high a thought of himself and he doesn't know it, for he necessarily thinks that the opinion he has of himself is what he has just grounds for, and therefore it's not too high. And I see in Nebuchadnezzar one of those, if you will, high thinkers. I am it. But he learns the hard way that the most high God is God and he and we are most certainly not. I want to take you to round four, Daniel chapter four, the first few verses. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how powerful his wonders. His kingdom will last forever. His rule through all generations. It says in verse four, listen to this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. And as the story goes for the rest of chapter 4, he has another dream, a second dream now. And this dream very clearly indicates that you may think that you're it, Nebuchadnezzar, but you're about to come crashing down. 
And so it continues on, and Daniel pleads with them, Nebuchadnezzar, if you would just stop sinning, you would do right, you would turn away from your wickedness. If you would do what we would call repent, all of this can be avoided. But verse 28 says, all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. All the things that happened in the dream. Twelve months later, now listen, catch that. Nebuchadnezzar has had a year to turn his life around to go a different way, and he doesn't do it. Twelve months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. And it says, while these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, and God essentially says this, and no more. I'm taking everything away from you. I'm taking your kingdom away, Nebuchadnezzar, and you will not get it back until he uses a phrase, until you will learn that heaven rules, that I am in charge. Blaise Pascal, the famous philosopher, once said, do you wish people to think well of you? Then don't speak well or too much of yourself. If we understand in one sense that God alone is perfectly holy, this second piece here is so very important, guys. Because God is supremely glorious, he will not allow any other person, any other king, any other God to steal his glory, and he graciously humbles all who proudly trust in themselves. You guys will well know if you're Old enough, and probably if you're over 30, you recognize the name Mike Tyson, right? Like, and as the story goes, in the early 90s, Mike Tyson was unstoppable. I mean, he was pounding fools left and right. Not want to get into a ring with that guy here's what happened with mike tyson as it does with most people and he came to a fight and you know dr douglas He got so ahead of himself that he actually was out all the night before this big major fight. Untouchable, invincible Mike Tyson. In many ways, people will say not only was this fight a shock because this no-name knocked him out, but in many ways, this caused Tyson's career to spiral downward, which he never recovered from this. All because of pride. C.S. Lewis captures it well. He says, a proud man is always looking down on things and on people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. 
And guys, I can only say it in the most loving way possible for, most, for some of us in this room this morning, all we have ever done is looked down. Look down on people. We look down on circumstances and situations in our life. And you know the place that we forgot to look? Up. Up to behold the glory and the holiness of God. Guys, here is what we need to understand about life and about this concept of pride. One of the not just one of, probably all of the biggest factors of your life, where you were born, the family that you were born into, all of the things about your life that determine the course of your life, you had no control over. What all we do is we just take the, God, the gifts that God gives us and we just utilize them. And do you know what happens when we do not acknowledge God and His holiness in the graces of our life? It is in some way a, a form of spiritual plagiarism. Our, our lives, every one of our lives should have a gigantic footnote that just reads, this came from God, it's not my doing. Every single thing in our lives, write it down, came from God, not from me. It's his doing, not my doing. I, I just, I just want to jump right to the core here, guys, of this. We ask these questions. How can I know a holy God, and how can I know that I'm becoming holy? Just boil it down to this. And, and again, it may seem very oversimplified, but I have a simple mind, so I just really need this. God hates evil. God loves good. So how do you and I know when we're becoming holy? Simply in the same way. You're going to love what is good and pure and noble, and you are going to hate what is despicable and sinful. And guys, it does not mean that we are ever going to be perfect. We are going to be far from it in this life, but it does mean that we are purposeful in our pursuit of God and become pleasing to the one who is holy, holy, holy. man by the name of William Evans says it this way, if there is any difference in the importance in the attributes of God, that of his holiness seems to occupy the first place. It is, to say the least, the one attribute which God would have his people remember more than any other. I think he's right because do you know how the Bible starts to come to an end in the book of Revelation chapter 4. It sounds very familiar to what we've talked about this morning. Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. And the voice said, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. 
And instantly I was in the Spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And in the center around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. The fourth was an eagle in flight. And we would say, what in the world is going on here, Ryan? Why are there oxes and why are there donkeys and cats and dogs? I don't understand what's happening here. Get past it. Each of these living beings, oh, here it is again, had six wings covered their eyes and their face, and with two they flew. And day after day and night after night they kept on saying, and say it with me, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who was and who is and who is still to come. My friends, may we gaze upon God's holiness in greater ways in our life. And as we do that, may we too become holy. Would you pray with me? Lord, I have to admit that in all of that and all that time spent studying and talking about the concept of holiness, it still feels so empty. And I'm convinced that if we could come to a point in our life where we understood your holiness in a greater way, we would be the better for it. We would not be the greater for it because when we come into your holiness, Lord, we are reduced to nothingness. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that. That at every moment, Lord, you are other, you are separate, you are cut off from us. But Lord, the greatest news is because of your son, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us in making a way for us to be able to approach you, Lord, you have become accessible to us. And that at every moment in life, Lord, you are standing there with us. You are with us in moments of crisis. You are with us in moments of, of fire and pain and trial, Lord, that when we are in those moments, we are at those crossroads where we would be able to not just continue to look down, but we would look up and we would catch a glimpse of your holiness. And just like Isaiah, and just like John writes in Revelation, we would be able to say, holy, holy, holy are you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.